Good morning. We're on lesson 16, if you can believe it, in our series on First and Second Thessalonians. The title I landed on for now is uh, Freeloaders and the Christian Work Ethics. Uh, there were other titles that were ranking high in my list of options. I still may go with one of those. They're probably less flattering than the one that I chose. My friend Fred Smith uh, gave us, made a statement years ago that I've told before, but he said, John Calvin would have been a great golfer. Everything that feels right is wrong. And, and I wanted to try and follow his tradition and, and to give one of my Duffy statements, and that is, Paul would have been a good Puritan. In terms of his work ethic that he teaches, uh, it matches very closely to the Puritan work ethic. And I put on the screen a book that is a secular book by two Hopper brothers and uh, Kenneth and William Hopper called The Puritan Gift. And it has been very fascinating to me to follow that. But he talks about, in effect, the Puritan work ethic as being the key, the foundation for the, uh, the rise of the uh, industrialization of the United States and the great prosperity that we have experienced in years gone by. They actually say it stopped in 1980, and uh, you ought to read the book to find out why. This week, uh, we were at the seminary, and, and Dr. Haddon Robinson was there talking about preaching. And he made a very interesting statement related to our topic and, and this text. He said, it is amazing to him how little emphasis is placed upon work. As important as that is in, in our uh, daily lives, he said 95% of all Christians have never heard one message on the subject of work. So you're no longer one of the 5%. Here we come as Paul uh, begins to unload on this matter of work, and he has been preparing, as it were, warming up for this all the way through. First and Second Thessalonians. Paul is really dealing with three major problems in the book of Second Thessalonians, and this is the third of those problems. The first problem is the problem of persecution. And surely the saints were wondering, as their persecution went on and on, as their suffering continued, they may be asking themselves, why would God allow this kind of thing to happen to his saints? And you remember that Paul says in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, it does two things. It proves the saints worthy of the rewards that they will receive, and it proves those who are unbelievers worthy of the judgment that is going to come at the second coming of our Lord Jesus. The second problem is addressed in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And that is the problem that is precipitated by those who are teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul proves that to be wrong by saying there are certain prerequisite events that must come first, the great apostasy that must arise, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Neither of those has happened, and so the, the uh, second coming of our Lord, the day of the Lord, has not yet come. The third group 
of problem people are what I have called the freeloaders. And those are the people who somehow are more than content to live off of the, uh, the hard work and labor of other people. Uh, they are not unable to work. They are unwilling to work. And so Paul has something to say to them. Now, I, I, I put a number of verses up, and trust me, I'm not going to try to work my way through all of those, but what I wanted you to see is how much the subject of work, come, how often it comes up in Paul's uh, epistles. And these are just Pauline. Now you say, well, Paul didn't write Acts. No, but these texts, especially after chapter 17, are texts about Paul in the book of Acts. I did include Acts 17.21 because that's Athens. And it talks about those people who spent time, it says, in nothing else than telling and listening to something new. I call those the sidewalk philosophers. They would rather sit on the sidewalk and theorize about life than they would to engage it by going to work. And it, it looks to me like Luke is not giving those boys a pat on the back. Um, because they were always trying to find something new and uh, illuminating for them. In Acts chapter 18, that's Paul who uh, joins up in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla in the making of tents. He does that until a gift comes from Macedonia, and then he devotes himself fully to uh, teaching and ministering there in Corinth. And then in Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he is making it very clear he is not in the ministry for money. In fact, he labors with his own hands so that he is not on the receiving end, monetarily speaking. He is the giver who sustains those saints uh, and meets their needs, setting an example for others to follow. So all the way through this, you see these texts which talk about Paul and work. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's probably the central text, and I put an asterisk by it, because there Paul is defending his right to be remunerated for his ministry, but his choice not to accept that for the sake of, of the gospel. So all of those texts are texts which have a lot to say. Now, I'm going to point out number 7, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 15. It's a backhanded text in this regard. It is talking about widows, uh, and that means older women and younger women, uh, and he's saying this. Not all women who are in need ought to be put on the list, that is, the list of those who are cared for and supported by the church. But it is very clear that one of the main benchmarks for whether a, a woman ought to be supported by the church, besides being 60 or older, is the fact that she has worked hard in ministering to other people so that she now is entering into a time when she is sustained. And I assume, by the way, that she doesn't stop working at 60. This isn't retirement, Social Security, Medicare. This is saying... This is the point at which the church ought to engage in, in uh, taking care of her needs so that she is free to minister. But in that same context, he is speaking also to younger women and speaking of younger women. And what he's saying is he encourages younger widows to remarry 
because they may be tempted uh, to forsake if they've made a vow to stay single and they want to remarry and forsake that vow, then that would not be beneficial to them. And he says that the danger is that they will go about, if they are not working, that they will spend their freedom and their leisure not in ministry to other people, but in going around being busy busybodies, which, in my opinion, is the female counterpart of what we're dealing with in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So that's a very, very important text. And, of course, verses 17 and 18 are talking about those who labor hard at preaching and teaching should be worthy of double honor. So it's a text about elders and remuneration. Well, I'll leave those texts for you, but I, I would encourage you to look at those because it's, it really informs us about how important the subject of work is to Paul. And, and when I say work, I mean hard work. He really emphasizes that dimension of working hard uh, at what, God has given us to do. Now look at Paul's personal example, and let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and begin at verse 9. Paul has been warming up for this. You need to understand that when we come to our text, it's Paul's last word on the subject, and it's sort of, as it were, the last straw on the subject of, of those who have not been gainfully involved in their employment. And, and so now he is going to his own example as he sets it forth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, and beginning at verse 9. For you recall, brothers and sisters, our toil and drudgery by working night and day so as not to impose a burden on any of you, we preach the gospel of God. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was toward you who believe. And as you know, we treated each one of you as a father treats his own children, exhorting and encouraging you, insisting that you live in a way that is worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. What Paul is doing is telling these Thessalonians, or I should say reminding these Thessalonians of the fact that the way in which he conducted himself in the realm of work was part of what accredited him and the message that he bought, brought. So he's saying the message was received and in part it was so because God took the way in which we lived, our lifestyle, and the Spirit of God convicted you of that message and that's the lifestyle that others should follow as well. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And verse 12, he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you, who labor among you, and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them most highly in love because of their work. Now, just just think about that. One of the things that he's saying about those who ought to be followed as leaders is that they are people who are known to be hard workers at what they do, and they are to be esteemed because of that. There are sort of armchair uh, workers as well, and Paul has something to say about that in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined, 
Now that's the characteristic that he uses to describe those who are not working. Undisciplined. Not unable, not disabled, undisciplined in their life. Okay, so let's look at the problem as it currently stands as we come to it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, some are undisciplined and they are not working. You see that in verse 6, verses 10 and 11. Not gainfully engaged. And in the process of that, they are living off of the resources of other people. These people are not just unemployed. These are people who are, in a sense, purposefully unemployed, and they are capitalizing on the benevolence and the generosity and the kindness of their fellow believers. So that you've got a certain amount of costs that go with life. And if these people are not gainfully employed and producing and adding, as it were, to the resources of the church, then they are on the negative side of the ledger. And Paul says they are depleting the resources. They are living off of the labors of other people. Again, we are not talking about people who can't work. We are not talking about people who have lost their jobs and are trying to work. We're talking about people who just flat choose not to work. Here's the very interesting thing. They are busy doing the wrong thing. Some people say they're busy bodies, and, and that's one way of understanding it. But as Paul is talking to those young women about marrying so that they're not going around as busybodies, what do you do with your spare time? That's the question. If you're not gainfully employed, if you're not, like Paul says, working day and night, what are you doing in your spare time? And Paul is suggesting that these people are actually getting themselves into trouble that they are going out and they are being active, but in ways that are not productive. Uh, in fact, he says, and he, he does a play on words here. He says, you're not working, you're working around, or what we I would call a workaround. A workaround work. So you're, you're, you're going around, you're doing all this and that, but the bottom line is you're not working, which is what they should have been doing. And... In the process of doing that, they're actually hindering others who are working. Have you ever seen this? I, I was thinking about that sign that, that goes up in, in some garages. It says, uh, you know, for uh, if, if we do the work so much an hour, if you watch so much more per hour, if you try to help, you know, then it's just we really raise the rates. In other words, we don't want you bothering us while we're doing our job. Because it's counterproductive. When I, when I came down to go to seminary, I was working at a, at a Christian business, and a number of seminary students were employed there. And you know, I, it was very interesting to me. Some of my fellow students felt that if they were talking about theology, it somehow doubled their break time. And so there'd be guys around talking about this kind of theology and that kind of theology and, and, and all of that. And sometimes there would be guys who were really trying to do their work. And these guys were over there bothering them, keeping them from doing their job because they weren't busy at what they were supposed to be doing. So Paul is saying these people are not just unemployed. They are not just not working. 
they are actually interfering with the people who do work. And that makes it even worse, of course, than uh, it could have been. It is clear that these people are believers. These are not people like you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where it's somebody who purportedly or supposedly claims to be a believer. Paul says these are people who are brothers, not supposed, not alleged. These are brothers in Christ. And when he ends this text, he says that they are to be dealt with as a brother. Verse 15. These are genuine saints who are not quite in line. It is clear that they have been disobedient. Paul has been giving his instructions all the way from 1 Thessalonians. He sets his example. He gives his instructions. These are people who have chosen to disregard what Paul has taught patiently and gently uh, through 1 Thessalonians, and now he deals with again in 2 Thessalonians. Not only have they rejected Paul's teaching, they have ignored his example. Paul's example is so obvious they can't look beyond it. That's why he calls attention to the way in which he has conducted himself among them. Here's what's interesting. Verses 12 through 15. It finally dawned on me, this is the last straw. This is the final warning that they get before bad things really begin to happen. Look at this. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Now such people we command and urge in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ to work quietly and so provide their own food to eat. But you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing what is right. But if anyone does not obey our message through this letter, you know, that's like you get in the mail, final notice. If they don't obey what happens in this letter, then take note of him and do not associate closely with him so that he may be ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonishing him as a brother. Final warning. Work quietly, support themselves. That's the cure. That's the solution. And if that's not heeded, then discipline is to follow. Now the church is to take action. They have, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, been encouraged to admonish, to warn, to instruct, all of those things. Now, if that's failed to do its work, then they are to take action. Notice it says uh, they are to be publicly identified, they are to be noted, they are to be marked. That is, at this stage of the game, those people ought to be identified so that the church knows that there is, in, in, in reality, an action that is being taken with respect to them. They are not to be supported, uh, a.k.a. they are not to be fed. If a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. And, and obviously, it seems to me that goes beyond food. But, but generally, I think what I've seen is when people are trying to mooch off of others, it's usually food which comes up because you say to yourself, well, we can't let them starve. And so if Paul takes the worst case, Paul says, oh, yes, we can. We can let them get hungry. Remember what Proverbs says? A worker's appetite works for him. It drives him on. Hunger is a wonderful motivation. I'm not going to talk about how far one's middle part extends over his belt, 
But, you know, I've noticed that a lot of people who are standing there with their hands out do not look malnourished. Somehow, food is coming their way. Paul says, don't support them, don't give them money, don't feed them, if indeed they are doing this in an undisciplined and disobedient manner. They are to be admonished as a brother and avoided. But, as he makes clear, treat them as a believer. Now, when we come to verses 16 through 18, these are Paul's final words, the closing of his two epistles to them. And I just want to call your attention to a couple things that we see as he closes off. Paul made it clear very early on in his writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he had been, as it were, snatched away from these believers. He wanted to remain with them longer. He wanted to teach and encourage and instruct them. He had loved them like a father. He had cared for them like a mother. But he had been snatched or torn away from them and he was unable to come to them. And every time he had attempted to do so, it says that Satan had thwarted or hindered him from doing so. So there is this big thing in Paul's mind, I want to return, but I haven't been able. That's why I sent Timothy, and, and, and he brought this word, and he reports back to us, and so on. I want to return. But notice the emphasis throughout First and Second Thessalonians isn't on Paul's return to Thessalonica. It's on the return of Jesus Christ to this world to possess and to take his saints and reward them and bring punishment on unbelievers. So what I want you to see is he is not emphasizing himself. He is not creating or trying to stimulate some dependence upon him so that they say to themselves, what if he doesn't come back? What if we don't see Paul again? Paul's saying, you have him. You have him. And that's why he prays that the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at all times, not part-time, at all times and in every way. God is absolutely sufficient to meet the needs of the Thessalonians in Paul's presence or in his absence. It matters not. So it is our Lord to whom they should look. And then he says in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He commends them to God. He commends God to them. Notice then verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is how I write every letter. I mentioned this last week in terms of authenticity. It is the Microsoft seal of authenticity in that it says, how do I know if somebody comes as though they have come from Paul, if they come as though they are reporting what Paul has said, if they come claiming to have seen a letter Written by Paul, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is how I write every letter, we might say, which is how I write every one of my letters. You find a letter from Paul that doesn't have my signature, it isn't mine. That's simple. And so this is the way in which they realize that they are getting the authentic message from Paul and not some contrived message from other people. 
Now, I wanted to stay longer on my application because I think this text is loaded, and I think we need to ponder what it means to us. Number one, do not confuse work with works. This is not talking about what people do in order to be saved. The gospel is crystal clear. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works, apart from law-keeping, apart from trying to do our best, apart from somehow trying to merit God's favor and approval. Works do not work when it comes to salvation. Forget it. What Paul is talking about here is gainful employment and, and active engagement in the things that God has given us to do. Folks, Work came as a result of the fall, and it's not going away until heaven. Maybe that's why those guys said the day of the Lord has come. (laughs) Now I can retire and have it my way. Well, fooey on that stuff. Works are not the point. Work is the point, and Christians ought to be known for their work. Well, somebody may come to this text and say, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Jesus and the apostles? They allowed other people to support them. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, you remember in verses 1 through 3, it talks about Jesus going about his ministry. And amongst those who followed him, in in addition to his male apostles, there were these women who followed him and supported Jesus out of their own resources. Jesus was supported by others, as were other of the apostles, and that's very clear. So, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that even Paul accepts money that enables him to minister? Now, it's very interesting. In 2 Corinthians, there were those, chapter 11, there were those who actually spoke ill of Paul because he didn't charge because he didn't charge. His was free, and they were saying, you get what you pay for. <laughs> so Paul's must not have been worth much. He had to give it away rather than sell it. But Paul said there, I took money from other churches. I robbed other churches to minister to you. What he didn't want was people there to whom he was proclaiming the gospel to say, oh, good night, one more of those people who just line in their own pockets. He wanted to make it clear he was there as a servant of God. And by the way, if you're going to talk to people about the grace of God, then it's awfully hard to talk about the grace of God and have your hand out saying, five cents, please. I'm I'm sorry, I'm speaking to Lucy. Some of you old enough to get with that. Lucy and her counseling, remember, deal or little lemonade stand, five cents, please. You know, they're tired of, of hearing that stuff. And it seems to imply to them that God's grace isn't free. So Paul wanted to make it very, very clear. But it's clear that Paul and other apostles did accept support. And 1 Corinthians 9 is a huge uh, place where that is is, uh, emphasized a lot. Don't muzzle the ox as it treads the corn. Don't people, as they work in the temple, don't they live and eat off of their labors? Yes, they do. So preachers, Galatians 6, 6 and 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, they too can rightly be supported for their ministry. And here's what I would say to this. 
Paul clearly reiterates the right, the right to be supported. He does so in our text. He said, now, I'm not saying this because I have no right. And when he says to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, we did not want to impose our weight. We didn't want to impose our right to support upon you because it would have been a burden for you. It wasn't that it was wrong. It was that he had chosen to set aside a right. In the context of 1 Corinthians, that's really critical because the issue in 1 Corinthians 8 has to do with meats offered to idols. And some people are saying, it's my right to do this. And Paul says, let's talk about rights for a minute. Here is a right that is clearly evident in Scripture, the right to be supported. I have chosen to waive that right for the sake of the gospel. So that's the example that Paul is setting. You don't have to claim your rights. You can, in fact, set them aside. I say marriage is a factor. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in those early verses, he talks about his right not only to be paid, he says, to lead about a wife. Now, it seems to me that one who is married and has a family has a different set of obligations than somebody like Paul who is single. So when Paul says, I have gone, you know, sleepless nights, I've gone in all of these dangers, as he says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's one thing to choose that lifestyle for yourself personally, and I think that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says to Christians, you ought to think seriously about staying single, because in some places, in some ministries, that's probably the best way to go. You don't put your family at risk. So it seems to me that whether or not you have a family and children may be a factor, and therefore the other apostles did have families and did accept support. But for Paul, that was not a necessity. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 7, uh, and you can look both in Luke 9 and Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the 12, and then he sends out in chapter 10, he sends out the 70, he tells them to go about and he says, in effect, don't take a purse with you, don't take extra food, and the assumption is clear, is it not? They ought to take care of you. When you come into a city and you declare your peace to a particular house, if they welcome you in, it says, eat whatever they serve. The assumption is you're eating their food. Paul says, you know, eat your own food. <laughs> Here you're eating their food. What's the exception? Look what they do in that house. They not only preach the gospel by which people can be saved, they come and they cast out demons and they heal and whatever. How, do you think somebody, when Jesus or one of the apostles came to their house and they healed somebody who was dying of a disease and, and they did these wonderful things for their family, that they go on and say, you know, we gave them four meals. Four meals! See, look, he says... The laborer is worthy of his wages. I want to tell you, nobody had an apostle stay at their house and said, we got ripped off. Nobody did. Because they worked. They worked. And so there's not an exception really to what Paul is saying. Here's the big one that I want to get to. Paul sets this right, the right to be supported, which he underscores twice. He sets that right aside for the sake of the gospel. Now, there are other reasons, other reasons. 
He sets that right aside so that he will not be a burden to other people. And, and you've got to think about that. If you've ever been in parts of the world, especially the third world, where you go to somebody's house and they want to show hospitality to you, I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but, but I have and I know some of you have. They will put their last food on the table. They will serve you everything they have for the rest of the month. They'll serve it to you in that meal. That's why Paul is saying, I don't want to be a burden to them. I'm going to come and I'm bringing a turkey. I'm bringing a ham. I'm bringing whatever he's bringing. He's bringing something because he's putting food on their table. He cares about them and he doesn't want them to be deprived of their own food because of their generosity to him. But besides that, I think the biggest motivator of all for the Apostle Paul is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it is crystal clear. Paul says, the reason that I chose to waive the right to be supported was simply this. My goal is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ as far and fast and effectively as possible. And when there are people out there hucksters who are out there shucking and jiving in order to get money. And there are people saying, what do you know? Here's one more just same like them. Nobody could say of Paul, this guy's in it for the money. I mean, here he is working night and day, working away, making his tents, laboring away. He's putting money and food on their table. Now, is that not a head-scratcher? Is that not something that puts Paul and the other apostles in a separate category? And you say, I have never. Have you? I remember when I was teaching in, in a state prison, and I heard these guys say, man, ain't that something? Ain't that something? This guy says in his new joysy twang, ain't that something? I never saw or heard anything like this before. That's another way for Sam. Weird. But you got to admit, it's different. It's different. And that was something that advanced the cause of the gospel. By the way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 12. In this way, you will live a decent life before outsiders and not be in need. In other words, your testimony for Jesus Christ is going to show up at work. Whether or not you work hard, whether or not you care for other people, whether or not you make sacrifices, it's going to be seen on your job. Are you there as a servant trying to help others and make their job easier, make them look good? i got to tell you, folks, in our working world, that's weird. That's out of the ordinary, and that's what sets Christians apart as servants, not self-seekers. So there is a very close relationship between one's work and the gospel. I was thinking about people in the Bible. Joseph. It was very clear to Pharaoh that this guy, Joseph, not only was really bright, but he had God on his side. Did he not? Pharaoh was saying, I don't know what you got. I, I'm not sure what all this means, but I want you on my team. Here was a guy who knew what he was talking about and he wanted him on his payroll. Same could be said for Daniel. Daniel not only served faithfully in one administration of government, 
He served in multiple administrations and his reputation preceded him to where somebody said, wasn't there this guy? Don't I remember something about a guy who's connected? But he was a man who in his job told it straight, told it graciously, did his job exceedingly well. Daniel, Nehemiah, these were men who did it well. Remember Proverbs? Proverbs said, if there is a man who is skilled in his labor... He will not be insignificant. He will stand before kings. Some people think that manual labor is something that is to be looked down upon. Not so far as I can tell in in, in the scriptures. And by the way, that's the kind of labor Jesus did. You know, a white collar job for him. He's working with his hands. And that can set you in a place of prominence and a place where the gospel can shine forth. A poor workman detracts from the gospel. I don't know any place in the world where people say, man, that guy is sloppy and lazy. He cheats on his hours. I want to believe what he believes. I want to know about his God. Nobody does. You discredit the gospel in doing that. Remember, by the way, in Titus chapter 2, where it talked about the older women ministering to the younger women, and it says, in order, in effect, that the gospel not be ill-spoken of, because the way in which we live our lives is a commentary on the gospel we should be proclaiming. There is a very close relationship. To do our job poorly reflects poorly on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To do it well speaks well for it. And you can see that Proverbs text I just cited. Ephesians chapter 6. Colossians that David quoted this morning. Colossians 3. That we ought to do our work diligently as to the Lord. Why? Well, one, because we're working for Him. He's the boss. And friends, you don't do anything that He doesn't see. But the other is, we represent Him to those amongst whom we work. And we reflect on the gospel. Okay, I'm going to beat on one of my hobby horses. Business is mission. I think this is one of the most effective strategic opportunities of our day. As, as country after country closes its door to missionaries, they're opening their doors to people who are known to be Christians and who do their jobs exceedingly well. I have a friend right now that is doing that in a closed country. They know who he is. They know what he's doing. But he does well, and they want good business. And so Christians who do their business well are welcome in places where Christians who just are there to proselytize in the minds of the, of the government, they don't want them. They see those people as a liability. But if you know public health... If you know something about getting water in a desert area, if you know something about medicine, you have a skill that they're going to take you in and they'll even look the other way when somebody says, but that guy's a Christian. In fact, if they were honest, they might say, I know, why do you think I chose them? They do their work well. And on top of having opportunities in places that are closed to the gospel, it's economically viable. In days when we're looking at economic meltdown and we look at the high cost of supporting missionaries, folks, 
I know of people out there who are begging for people who will come overseas for a premium wage in order to get their skills and in doing their job well, they proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great opportunity. Okay, off my hobby horse and on to church discipline. This is, this is a text which I had to take note of because whenever I thought about church discipline, I always thought about Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where, and, you know, the end game is that you treat them as a, as a Gentile or as an unbeliever. And 1 Corinthians 5, I turned such a one over to Satan. <laughs> Ooh, gee, those are, that's tough stuff. Look at this text. This brother, his salvation is not questioned, this brother is to be admonished, warned, exhorted to, to obey and to be diligent in his work. But even if he disregards that exhortation, he is to be drawn away from, yes, in a way that he feels, in some real tangible way. But he is always to be regarded as a brother. Now, what I'm saying in, in that is that now when I look at the subject of church discipline, it seems to me that you can't just think of Matthew 18. That's, that's, the, that's the really hard line. And it's there, and we need to exercise it. But there may be degrees in between where we're not as severe because we recognize that all offenses are not on the same level. Anyway, this text causes me to say, I now need to read Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 in the light of the fact that Paul does not always say every case is to be dealt with in precisely the same boilerplate way uh, as we see in those texts and we compare it to our own. The implications of our text to a New Testament church. Now we're talking about work and workers, and it's very clear that there is work to be done that is not just employment. There is work to be done, the work of the ministry. If a man desires uh, to be uh, to have the office of an elder, he desires a good work. Do you think it's easy to be an elder? Do you think this is like a paid vacation? For people to be elders, it is, it, it, as one of my fellow elders used to say, you know, it's like all other work. It's under the curse. It's painful labor. But you do it because that's what God has called you to do. And people should, rightly, I think, honor those who labor uh, well at it. But think about the New Testament church. It's one thing for people who are a part of a church who choose not to employ themselves and therefore deprive the church of income, if you want to put it in those terms. That's one thing. That's a factor. But there's also the reality that in a New Testament church, the work of ministry is not the work of some paid professional group, the staff. The work of the ministry is the work of every single believer. And if we don't do our work... If we don't do the work of ministry God has given to us, friend, the church suffers because you can't hire enough staff to do what the church is to do as a church. There's another thing that's related to that. When you look at the teaching of the scriptures on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Ephesians chapter 4, 
What the Scripture says is that God uniquely equips every believer to carry on a particular ministry. My friend, if you do not do your job, nobody can do that job like God equipped you to do it. Do you buy that? You buy that? If you fail to work at your task in the church, nobody will completely cover that base. It'll, it may get done. God may sovereignly work around you, but I'm saying... If any of us fail at our task, the church suffers because of it. And New Testament ecclesiology really makes failing to work in the church a very, very serious offense. Well, I don't want to beat on that drum too much, but let me just ask the question. What is the work that God has given you in this church? And I'm not saying that the only work God has given you is inside these walls. It may well be outside the walls. That's fine. What work do you do for this church? What work do you do for the Lord outside this church, outside this country? That's fine. But what has God uniquely given you to do that if you don't do it, it won't be done the way God wanted to do it through you? You ought to think about that. If you can't name a job, then maybe you ought to get a job in the church doing things. There are people who are working very hard. There are, work, there are people working extra hard because other Christians are not doing their job. And I could name all kinds of ministries where that's apparent. I would say this. As a church, we do better than most. But we don't do as well as we should. To the overworked. I, I love that verse. Verse 13. Don't grow weary in doing well. You know, that's speaking now to the tired, overworked minority in the church that's covering the bases for people who aren't working. And there are times when it would be easy to pick up your marbles and just say, forget it, I am tired. I am tired of doing other people's jobs. Paul says to them, don't give up. Don't give up. God honors faithfulness. Last point. Prophecy is practical. Isn't it interesting the way Paul ends two epistles which are so into prophecy? He doesn't talk about, you know, here's a couple of new theories that you ought to mull around and, you know, toss around and, and just like the people in Athens, you know, one more theory about how it's going to happen. He's talking about the most mundane part of your life and mine, going to the job. And I think about Daniel. I read the book of Daniel and I see all this high-powered prophecy going on. But do you notice interspersed between all those revelations, you see Daniel living his life in a very meaningful, practical way. He is living out his faith day to day as a believer in a way that enhances the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecy is meant to be practiced. And it is meant to be practical. As practical as doing your work well for the glory of God. John Calvin would have said amen. The Puritans did say amen. And I think Paul, louder than any of them, is saying amen to that. Father, we thank you for this text. And we thank you for these epistles. Help us to live our lives in the light of the, the second coming. And we know that when you come, you want to see us at work, not see us lounging 
but see us at work doing the things that you have given us to do. And it is on the basis of that that we look forward to the rewards that you have in store for us. Help us to be faithful workers. Help us to be hard workers. Help us not to leave our burden at somebody else's doorstep. Help those who are faithful and persistent and reliable not to give up, but to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.